Tzav, left and right brain Judaism. The institution of the Haftarah, reading a passage from the prophetic literature alongside the Torah portion, is an ancient one, dating back at least 2,000 years. Scholars aren't sure when, where and why it was instituted. Some say it began when Antiochus IV's attempt to eliminate Jewish practice in the 2nd century BCE sparked the revolt we celebrate on Hanukkah. At that time, so the tradition goes, public reading from the Torah was forbidden, so the sages instituted that we should read a prophetic passage whose theme would remind people of the subject of the weekly Torah portion. Another view is that it was introduced to protest the views of the Samaritans and later the Sadducees who denied the authority of the prophetic books, except the book of Joshua. The existence of Haftarot in the early centuries of the Common Era is, however, well attested. Early Christian texts, when they relate to Jewish practice, speak about the law and the prophets, implying that the law, namely Torah, and the prophets, namely the Haftarah, went hand in hand and were read together. Many early Midrashim connect verses from the Torah with those from the Haftarah, so the pairing is ancient. Often the connection between the parasha and the haftarah is straightforward and self-explanatory. But sometimes, though, the choice of prophetic passage is instructive, telling us what the sages understood as the key message of the parasha. Consider the case of Beshalach. At the heart of the parasha is the story of the division of the Red Sea and the passage of the Israelites through the sea on dry land. That's the greatest miracle in the Torah, and there's an obvious historical parallel. It appears in the book of Joshua. The river Jordan divided, allowing the Israelites to pass over on dry land. Now this surely should have been the obvious choice of Saftorah, but it wasn't chosen. Instead, the sages chose the song of Devorah from the book of Judges. This tells us something exceptionally significant. Tradition judged the most important event in Bishalach not to be the division of the sea, but rather the song the Israelites sang on that occasion, their collective song of faith and joy. This suggests very strongly that the Torah isn't humanity's book of God, in which case it would have made the divine miracle central, but God's book of humankind, because it focuses on the Israelites and their song. And uh, that is a powerful message from the uh, choice of Haftarah. But there are some Haftarot that are so strange that they deserve to be called paradoxical, since their message seems to challenge rather than reinforce that of the Parsha. One classic example is the Haftarah for the morning of Yom Kippur, which is from the 58th chapter of Isaiah, one of the most astonishing passages in the prophetic literature. Isaiah says, is this in the name of God? Is this the fast I have chosen, a day when a man will oppress himself? Is this what you call a fast, a day for the Lord's favour? No, this is the fast I choose. Loosen the bindings of evil and break the slavery chain. Those who are crushed, released to freedom, shatter every yoke of slavery. Break your bread for the starving and bring dispossessed wanderers home. When you see a person naked, clothe them. Do not avert your eyes from your own flesh. The message is unmistakable. We spoke about it in last week's Covenant and Conversation. The commands between us and God and those between us and our fellows are inseparable. Fasting is of no use 
if at the same time you don't act justly and compassionately to your fellow human beings. You can't expect God to love you if you do not act lovingly to others. That much is clear. But to read this in public on Yom Kippur, immediately after having read the Torah portion describing the service of the high priest on that day together with the command to afflict yourselves, is jarring to the point of discord. Here is the Torah telling us to fast, atone, and purify ourselves, and here is the prophet telling us that none of this will work unless we engage in some kind of social action, or at the very least behave honorably toward others. The Torah and Haftarah are two voices that don't sound as if they're singing in harmony, they sound as if they're in discord. The other example is the Haftarah for today's Parsha. Tzav is about the various kinds of sacrifices. Then comes the Haftarah with Jeremiah's almost incomprehensible remark. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, obey me, and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. This seems to suggest that sacrifices weren't part of God's original intention for the Israelites at all. It seems to negate the very substance of the parasha. What does it mean? The simplest interpretation is that it means I did not only give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I commanded them, but they weren't the whole of the law, nor were they even its primary purpose. A second interpretation is the famously controversial view of Maimonides that the sacrifices weren't what God would have wanted in an ideal world. What he wanted was avodah. He wanted the Israelites to worship him. But they, accustomed to religious practices in the ancient world, could not yet conceive of avodah shebelev, the service of the heart, namely prayer. They were accustomed to the way things were done in Egypt, and indeed virtually everywhere else at that time, where worship meant sacrifice. On this reading, Jeremiah meant that from a divine perspective, sacrifices were bidiavad, not lechadchila, an after-the-fact concession, not something desired at the outset. A third interpretation, the one I would offer, is that the entire sequence of events from Exodus 25 to Leviticus 25 was a response to the episode of the golden calf. This, I've argued elsewhere, represented a passionate need on the part of the people to have God close, not distant, in the camp, not just at the top of the mountain, accessible to everyone, not just Moses, and on a daily basis, not just at rare moments of miracle. That is what the tabernacle, its service and sacrifices represented. It was the home of the Shekhinah, the divine presence, from the same root as Shachen, meaning a neighbor. Every sacrifice, in Hebrew, korban, meaning that which is brought near, was an act of coming close. So in the tabernacle, God came close to the people, and in bringing sacrifices, the people came close to God. Now, this was not God's original plan. As is evident from Jeremiah here and the covenant ceremony in Exodus, the intention was that God would be the people's sovereign and lawmaker. He would be their king, not their neighbor. He would be distant, not close. The people would obey his laws. They wouldn't bring him sacrifices on a regular basis. God doesn't need sacrifices. But God responded to the people's wish. 
much as he did when they said they couldn't continue to hear his overwhelming voice at Sinai, on which God says, I have heard what the people said to you, everything they said was good. What brings people close to God has to do with people, not God. That is why sacrifices weren't God's original intent, but rather the Israelites' spiritual psychological need, a need for closeness to the divine at regular and predictable times. What connects these two haftarot is their insistence on the moral dimension of Judaism. As Jeremiah puts it in the closing verse of the haftarah, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight. That much is clear. What is genuinely unexpected is that the sages join sections of the Torah and passages from the prophetic literature so different from one another that they sound as if coming from different universes with different laws of gravity. That's the greatness of Judaism. It's a choral symphony scored for many voices. It's an ongoing argument between different points of view. Without detailed laws, no sacrifices. Without sacrifices in the biblical age, no coming close to God. But if there are only sacrifices with no prophetic voice, then the people may serve God while abusing their fellow humans. They may think themselves righteous while they are in fact merely self-righteous. The priestly voice we hear in the Torah readings for Yom Kippur and Tzav tells us what and how. The prophetic voice tells us why. They're like the left and right hemispheres of the brain, or like hearing in stereo or seeing in 3D. That is the complexity and richness of Judaism. And it was continued in the post-biblical era in the different voices of Alacha and Agadah. Put priestly and prophetic voices together, and we see that ritual is a training in ethics. Repeated performance of sacred acts reconfigures the brain, reconstitutes the personality, reshapes our sensibilities. The commandments were given, said the sages, to refine people. The external act influences inner feeling. The heart follows the deed, as the Sefer Chinuch puts it. I believe that this fugue between Torah and Haftarah, priestly and prophetic voices, is one of Judaism's great glories. We hear both how to act and why. Without the how, action is lame. Without the why, behavior is blind. Combine priestly detail and prophetic vision, and you have spiritual greatness. Shabbat Shalom.